You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Uh, We weren't just having technical difficulties. Apparently, I'm having communication difficulties. You need to go about six books to your right. We are starting Lamentations 1. Uh, So keep thumbing through. We will do uh, Psalms 45, um, without a doubt. But we're starting Lamentations 1, and so that's been on the docket for a little while, and we've actually been reading a a lot on it. Um, And uh, so keep going. You'll have to go past Jeremiah. Jeremiah's long, so you have to keep thumbing there. But we're going we're gonna to see a, a lot actually in, in this book. And so like a lot to, to my dismay as we've been, I mean, several books reading on this, looking to see how other pastors have preached this, um, literally, like it seems like almost no one preaches through, through Lamentations. I mean, including us. We didn't even read it. Um, other than like Lamentations 3, verses 21 through 25, like almost no one preaches it. I told my wife this. Uh, earlier this week, I was like, man, it's just so discouraging. I feel like I have no guides for this. And she looked with worried, like worry in her face. And she said, you mean you're going to have to use all original ideas? And I was like, man, I don't know if it's going to be that bad. But I mean, but like when we look at, at Lamentations, like there's so much about our humanity and our culture that needs to see this. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware, but it, it's an election week. Um, earlier this, uh, this week, um, Cruz was talking, and he said, man, <clears throat> I hope George Washington wins. And, uh, and it, we're studying, I mean, he's studying that in, in history and uh, social science. And so, I mean, and so there's a lot, like, coming into that. How does government work? You know, how is it? And so he just kind of got, got mixed up on this. But, like, I want to remind you, like, just kind of this Sunday, moving into election week, I just want to remind you so that you might not be confused about something also. Like, we have flawed candidates who have flawed character, who are on flawed platforms, who have sorted past. Like, I just want you to be clear, like, we don't have a savior on the ballot. Like, we, we don't have a savior on the ballot. And 2,000 years ago, we actually did have the savior on the ballot, and we voted for the murder of Barabbas. And so as you enter into this, I just want to make sure that there's a precedence of the kingdom of God. Like we would wrestle in, like there would be something that would say, is there something about my faith and my Christianity that will live on, that will stand firm if America is nothing but a distant past? Will my faith stand? Like as we look into that, and whatever happens, like, you know, we need to take the posture that really Augustine took. And so, you know, if you, history, like 410 AD, the barbarians, they surrounded Rome. And that's just a way to say the people who didn't, you know, they didn't speak Latin. They surrounded Rome and they sacked Rome. And like all of a sudden, you know, this is after like Rome had kind of turned uh, Christian. All of a sudden, like the, the, the more civilized like environment was like, what could happen if our chief city can fall? Is there any hope? Can anything stand? And so Augustine wrote the city of God. 
And he wanted to make sure to divide this. And he said, hey, there, there is a city of God and there is a city of man. And they have competing loves no matter how good the city of man is. There will always be competing loves and there will always be competing ends. And he did that to grow in you that there is a kingdom that is unshakable and we are citizens of that kingdom. And that doesn't mean we don't have civic duty. That doesn't mean that we don't press in. It means that we can't put our hope in this. You are a part of the kingdom of God. And that should be evident in us. And so that actually has little to do other than in that moment the people seeing our chief city fell is the exact historical precedent that was happening to the people in Jerusalem. If Jerusalem can fall, is there any hope for any of us? Who are we when our cities fall? Like those kind of questions, like what do I do when the sovereign God of love and forgiveness hurts me? What, what do I do when sin ravages on? I've tried to fight it over and over, but it keeps going. When recovery doesn't come, when reconciliation fails, no matter how hard I work, how do I rectify a loving God who hasn't removed the pain or the loss, even though I've asked? How do I hold both the loving God who forgives sin and the devastation that I see all around me? How do I hold the promises of God when he seems so far off? Or maybe it feels like he will never come. How? How? When I find that I'm living in this already but not yet place, Jesus has come, he has established an eternal kingdom, but I just don't see it in my life right now. I just don't see it around me. What do I do? Like these are the kind of questions. And the Bible tells us really plainly. The Bible says we lament. And as a people in our culture, we do it so poorly. And so Jeremiah, he teaches us as he laments the death of his city and nearly the death of his entire nation. And we, we don't like to think about it, but everything dies like everything, pets die, parents die, spouses, friends, siblings, kids die. There is a mouse in my house right now that is going to die, even though one of my kids is trying to feed it. It's going to die. Everything dies. Churches are planted and other churches close their doors. Neighborhoods once have like economic prowess become slums. Nations that stood for a thousand years are no longer standing. Everything dies. How do I hold the God of resurrection, forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life with the hurt, loss, and brokenness that I see? The Jesus who healed the sick, touched the untouchable, and raised Lazarus from the dead is the same Jesus who told us there would be a day that brother would betray brother unto death. That there would be a day father would betray children, child betray parents. There would be a day that suffering would cause all to lament life itself. Mothers would even envy the barren. These are Jesus' words. 
Like the process of stepping in when the world doesn't look like it's supposed to look and yet I have a sovereign God over all of it and we could argue whether he's doing it or allowing it but if he can stop it and he doesn't, we're kind of begging the point. What do I do when I see death? Death and its impacts can't be avoided. It has to be dealt with. The scriptures are very clear. God is Lord over all of it. And the question is not will there be death, but it's how will we understand it, address it, and even find God in it. And so here we have lamentations. A city has fallen. Being sieged for, for almost two years, it's now fallen and there is death in the street. Lamentations is a collection of funeral songs, five in in total, and it's written by the, the weeping prophet Jeremiah. It's, it's actually, it doesn't say, hey, these are the lamentations of, of Jeremiah, but from internal evidence, the language that you see is so similar. And then in Jeremiah 30 and 36, Jeremiah writes, you know, God led me to write down all that he told me and included lamentations. Like there's very little doubt, especially historically, that Jeremiah wrote this. He would have had the perfect vantage point. He would have seen the destruction. He survived and then was sent to North Africa. He would have seen the diaspora, all of God's people, the best of the city that survived, taken into slavery. He would have seen all of it. And these are what he pinned down, funeral songs. Uh, Lamentations 1, 2, 3, and 4, they're written in an acrostic, which means alphabet songs. And so the first line, it starts with A. The second line starts with B. And then you get to uh, Lamentations 3, and what happens is it actually goes A, 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 B, 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 C, C. It keeps going like that to really hit the point. And in a way, it's almost like a really orderly way to talk about all the destruction and chaos that he sees. That's what lamenting does. I label what I see. Like, like lamenting is this way that I look. It's almost like I just put words to the pain that I see. It's almost a, a protest unto God where I'm saying like, God, I don't even understand how this fits. And now I gotta work that into a B letter because it's the second line. I don't understand how it works. And, and then it also helps put you in a place where you're asking God to do something. And so in Lamentation 1, we find great loss and great questions, like Jerusalem has died. It isn't at all what it once was. Like the reality of its tragic demise causes sadness and anger and vulnerability and questions. How did we get here? And what we see in verses 1 through 11 is it's a named account of what happened from the outside looking in. And then next week we're going to look at from the inside looking out. But we're going to look at how this does. And it's the kind of questions that we want to ask. Like is there any hope or purpose in the midst of suffering and death? Like you might say, I know Romans 8, 28 promises that God can use this for good. I just don't see him doing it. Or is my present pain the result of my screwed up past and can I not escape it for anything? These are the questions that he puts to a structured poem that we might enter in and we see great loss. We see great questions. And we're gonna look at this in two points. 
And so there's just two points. And so if you want to write these down and you want to stop taking notes, you can. Or if you didn't come to take notes, you can write these two points on your hand and be done. We're going to see sufferings named. Verses 1 through 7, he's very careful to name all the suffering that he sees around. And then from there, verses 8 through 11, he's going to say the cause of those sufferings. And so sufferings, and then he's going to label the sins. And so look, for sufferings, the sufferings are detailed and named. Like chapter one, it weaves these three themes together. Like there's the suffering of God's people. And then there's the sin that got them there. And then there's God's response to the sin that got them there. And so we see these things being weaved together from two perspectives, like suffering from the outside, a witness looking into it, making observations, which this is actually a very helpful thing to do. Like when you're lamenting or you're just sad, just to step aside and say, man, if I was just observing myself, what would I see? And so first it's outside looking in, and then next week we're going to look at inside looking out. And then we also see the personified nature of the city. And so over and over it, it calls the city of Jerusalem, she this corporate suffering of people together because of past mounting sins. What do we do with that? And so look at verse one. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people from the outside looking in, looking at the city. It is lonely. It was once full of people. I mean, it starts with that. The people have fallen Her people are gone, dead, taken. Who's left? Dwindling in the empty streets. And then it goes on, it says, how like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. A widow is someone who lost the things that are most precious to him. And it looks at this city, it's like like all she has are the memories to hang on to, the memories that might haunt her. She is lost. We could say this is like a people loss, this is like an economic loss. And then it goes on and it says, she who was once a princess among the provinces has become a slave. This is like the anti-Disney horror movie. Not the slave that becomes a princess. This is everything stripped away, all social power lost. This is courageous. To take a step outside of yourself and honestly say, what has been lost? Like if I were an observer of my life, what would I say has been taken? Like do you have the courage to look at your life and to say, man, there was innocence that was lost? Or or because of a fragile foundation or the fragile relationships that I had, like my courage was zapped. or intimacy was lost, or relationships were dashed. What is the suffering in and around you? Have you named it? Verse two, it goes on. It says, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheek among her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Like, do you see that? Lovers and friends, now enemies. The ones you used to call lovers and friends are now enemies. The outside observant perspective is they're sleeping just fine, but I can't. She weeps bitterly in the night. No rest to be found. 
Like learning from Jeremiah, like can you learn that from an outside perspective, can you name what is stealing your rest when you can't sleep? Verse three, it goes on, it says, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction, hard servitude, she dwells among the nations, but finds no resting place. <clears throat> her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The Babylon captivity lasted roughly you know, roughly like 70 years. They drug off the best of the survivors and made them servants in lands far away and the weakest were left behind. They took and now what's being observed is what's left. Ruins, memories, pain. And this is God's people who hold the promises of the covenant. Like verse four, it goes on to describe the outside setting. Looking in the roads to Zion mourn, for none can come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groans. Her virgins have been afflicted. She herself suffers bitterly. The priests down to the young girls, they all mourn. The desolation is felt in the roads and the broken gates. Like the, the festivals that once marked, like you know, the happy times of the year that we came together are now just a reminder of what's lost. Do you know not everyone looks forward to their birthday? Not just aging people who are like, oh man, my creeks are getting older. I mean, not everyone looks to it because it's a reminder that their family doesn't celebrate. How do you feel when you have to go to another wedding? How do you feel when there's another baby announcement? Not everyone feels the same way. Sometimes those things become marks of what was taken and what was lost. And Jeremiah says, you need to lament. He starts by naming it. It goes on and it says in verse five, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer. They find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. All that is saying the leadership has changed, and now Zion, now Jerusalem has no power to self-govern, no status to hold themselves. They have no position that's been lost, and they're wondering, will it ever be returned? Will I ever have autonomy again? And then verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hands of the foe. There was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. You see a naming of all the sufferings. The once vibrant city is now lonely. Once able to rest is now full of anxiety. Once hopeful and trusting is now mournful and fearful. Can you name the losses in you and around you? See, there's a brand of Christianity that just wants to talk about the victorious life that you have in Christ. And it wants to sell you all the promises that are for the afterlife and for your soul. It wants to sell it just to your body. And Lamentation stands here and it just looks at something that's dead. It says, can you behold this thing that's dead still in the hands of a loving God? But can you behold this? And then it tells us, like, this is the hardest thing. Like, if you look back in verse 5, it tells us why. Why? 
Like first we name it, but in verse five it says, because the Lord has afflicted her. Or or verse eight, because Jerusalem has sinned grievously. And so first we see suffering named, but then we see the cause of their suffering. And it's named too, and it's called sin. Lamentations named their suffering in verses one through seven. And that is hard to do. Like I think for some people it's really, really hard. I think it's probably like a protection mechanism. Like if I don't name it, it's not really there. If I just kind of like stick my head in the ground like an ostrich, I don't have to embrace it. It's not real. It's like playing hide and go seek when you're a young kid. Uh, When Quinn was about three, uh, Liv was taking a nap. And so I was playing with her. And so we start playing hide and go seek. And so we start in the room. And I start counting out loud, and she runs into the next room, and <clears throat> she starts hiding. And so I get down counting like 20, and I hear her in the next room, so I know where she is. But I kind of narrate it. And so I'm like, is Quinn under the bed? And then I hear this, no. <clears throat> I'm like, man, not very good at this yet. And so I don't want this to end, so I just start narrating it. You know, is she behind the chick? No. And I keep moving, and then I walk into the living room where she is, and she's in the laundry basket, not under the laundry basket. She's just sitting in the laundry basket, covering up her eyes like this. And from her perspective, she is hidden. It's not there. She's safe. From her perspective... And I think we do this with suffering in a means to try to control our environment. Like we don't want to label what's lost. And so this started with just a labeling of all that was lost. And then it looks at the cause of the suffering. And so the cause of a suffering, like let's be specific here. Let's look at limitations. The cause of their suffering is a collective sin among the community, among the nation. Like the actual specific sins are not yet named here. But we do see that the cause of the suffering was corporate in nature. And so the personified nature of Jerusalem clumps the people together. And so like the first thing that we would see in verse 5 and 8 that we just read is we would see Jerusalem's suffering is because of her many, and we see these words, allowed transgressions and grievous sins. And so look back at verse 5 again. It says, the Lord has afflicted her, the city, for the multitude of her, the city, transgressions, a multitude of sins that the city embraced, that didn't stop. And so the city is dying because of many sins in the city. Verse 8, it says, Jerusalem, the city, and so that's everyone, it says, sinned grievously. And so it doesn't mean that everyone in town partook in it, but it means there's a collective nature of brokenness that we see, that when a people embrace a collective nature of brokenness, like there's a fallout, there's a brokenness that happens. It creates a future that has unrest and difficulties. And so Jeremiah names All things, things that were lost, once a princess, now a slave, once vibrant, now empty, once full, now hungry, once able to rest, now full of anxiety, once celebrating all the things, all the festivals, now it's gone, and all we have is lamenting and sadness. And then it moves to say, God was judging a corporate nature of his people. And it gets more specific. Like, look, look at verse 9. In verse 9, it says this. It says, her uncleanliness was in her skirts. 
She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. And so this is kind of saying like Jerusalem clothed itself, the city clothed itself in an identity in sin with no regards to the future. Like the word for in her skirts is only used here. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible, but it comes from a word that's used a lot, which means robe. And so the translation is kind of like what we would say, <clears throat> like we would say, you know, if you made your bed, now you have to lie in it. It's saying she clothed herself, the city clothed herself in a sinful identity, embraced it around. It doesn't mean everybody did, but the city as a whole. And now God is saying there's brokenness that follows. And so like we do this individually. You know, we take on a, a practice sinful behavior and we start to think man god will do nothing about it no regard to the future we we do this like familiarly i don't think that's a real word but familiarly write it down we, we do it like we excuse sins because we say oh man we're just passionate you know or that's how we are i mean i'm italian i mean i'm obviously not italian i'm pasty and white but we, we say like that's just the way we are and so we don't fight these hard things in our life we just excuse it and like jerusalem this is saying we do it corporately like there are culturally accepted embraced patterns and beliefs that are according to this judgeable sins that have natural ends that lead to death and decay. My junior year in, in college, um, one of my friends, he was uh, the Black Student um, Association president, and he uh, asked me to be a part of um, a multicultural stomp down routine because they were having national, the Panhellenic National Stomp Down. And I thought, well, yeah, that would be cool. And so for weeks and weeks, we practiced uh, stomp down, you know, I mean, you know, it wasn't very good, but um, so we practiced and we started to think we were pretty good. Like, I mean, when we would be going, you know, Corey would like get really upset. He's like, oh man, it sounds like muddy water. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But uh, we thought we were pretty good. And so we did the opening, like it packed out the, the basketball arena. And so, I mean, Lloyd Noble, it's big. And so it packed it out and we were all there and it was time to go on and smoke rolled out and the lights and the music started off and we had little routines to come in and we did it. And I thought, man, we are awesome. We should probably win this thing. And then the first act went, and I thought, man, I really regret being a part of this. <laughs> like, it was a different league. Like, we weren't, we weren't ready for it. During those weeks that we were practicing, I was just talking to Corey, and he said something to this effect. He said, uh, we were talking about school, and he's like, man, I'm doing research um, on the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. And here's the, I didn't want to look stupid, so I acted like I knew what he was talking about, like, oh, man. I mean, it has massacre in it, so I knew that it was bad. And so I was like, yeah. And I played soccer in Tulsa my whole life. Like, if you go in there, you're going to see signs that say, up with trees. And so, grow trees. And so I played there my whole life. I never heard about it. So I, I go home, and I Google. Google had been out for about 10 years at that point. So I Google and I couldn't find anything on it because I was Googling 1921 Tulsa Massacre. And I finally found a side story that said the 1921 race riot. And I start to read 
1921, over Memorial Day weekend, after a 19-year-old black teenager, Dick Rowland, was accused of assaulting a 17-year-old white girl for op- who operated an elevator in the Drexel building, I started to read about what unfolded. I started to read that he was arrested and held, and what happened was somewhere around a thousand white Tolsons came and started to demand that he be released to them. And then what happened were, you know, the black community heard about that, and about 75 armed black men went to help protect the sheriff's office. And so they were like, hey, they're going to lynch him. We have to stop this. And what unfolded on June 1st before dawn broke was one of the worst historical atrocities right in a city about an hour and a half away from me, and I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. You know, the official count says like 36 people were killed. The historical count is closer to 300. That area, that Greenwood district, was it was called, you know, Black Wall Street is one of the most prosperous neighborhoods for, for black Americans in, in the country. And it was destroyed. Some of the people were deputized by the city and given arms. There were literally firebombs dropped out of private airplanes decimating the city. In 2012, a bill came on the Oklahoma Senate floor that said that should be taught in every his- Oklahoma history class. And it didn't pass because the, what it was said was, it's already taught. I never learned it. You see, the sitting moment that Jeremiah had as he looked at Jerusalem would have been the same sitting moment that the black community right there would have had where they see something before them that is just dead. I think what happens is like a child covering her eyes in a laundry basket we want to hide our we want to hide our eyes from atrocities that are around us or losses that are before us and what Lamentations is telling us is like we just need to look at it and we need to say there's a reason to lament Like some things we just need to limit and we can question, God, I don't know what this is. But this starts off by says we need to name, like we need to name what was taken and what was lost. But refusing to look at our personal corporate sins, it doesn't exonerate us. It doesn't give us a pass. It only keeps us from healing through what the Bible and what we're going to see unfolding says is lamenting. See, Jeremiah looks at the suffering around him. He looks at his city and his people, and he sees its death. He names it. He names the cause of it, and he offers no remedies. He just laments. Now now look at verse 10. It says, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nation enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Suffering and death was named. Brokenness and sin was acknowledged. 
And now this points to a savior that's needed. The gospel makes a trade that is possible. Through lamenting the brokenness and bringing what we have, the gospel makes a trade possible. In verse 11, it says, The people groaned as they traded all their earthly treasures, all that they had for food to revive. It says to revive their life, to revive them. Like on the cross, we have this great exchange because Jesus traded all his strength. He traded his very life to give you the treasures of heaven. Like what must I give? to get the treasures of heaven. What must we bring to be saved? In verse nine, look at verse nine. It tells us that we have to bring what we have and it says that we are clothed in unclean skirts. We are clothed in a brokenness that demands judgment. But the gospel says that God is willing to take our filthy garments to give you a garment of righteousness. Romans 13, 14 tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for sin. Have you looked to Jesus and offered him what you have? A tattered past. A broken spirit a questioning mind that looks at the death that's around and just questions and then starts to make accusation toward God, like where were you? The God who laid down his life to provide a way back gave up his vitality so that you could have the treasures of heaven. We look at him and we say, do you even care? And this is the beautiful thing. This is what Lamentation is gonna show us. This is what, this is what Jeremiah wants us to know. That place those words, that protest that we bring to God is something that he loves to fulfill. And so if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you have to trade what you have. You can't bring your self-help remedies and how you're going to fix your life so that God's like grading on a curve. And he's like, man, I'm pretty lucky to have them on my team. You actually don't have that. You have to bring what you have. It's what we all have, but it's the hardest thing to actually bring. All I have is a tattered past, and I want the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in communion. We come to communion, although you're not coming, you're staying where you are with your little juice cup. It's weird. But we come to communion bringing nothing. And the Lord at his table receives and gives everything. The elements point to the pouring out of Jesus' life. If you're a Christian, we invite you to participate in communion. And we ask you to Focus on this, like, is there a suffering that you actually need to name? Like, just like this, like, would you be an observer on the outside, and would you look in and just name a suffering? Like, and I know what some of us want to do. Some of us want to not name it because there's people out there who are suffering more, and that's not what lamenting is about. Lamenting is just to hold something that's been broken or lost and to say it's been broken and it's lost. And as Christians, we get to hold it up to a loving father and say, look at what was broken and lost. Can you actually do something with this? Can you actually make sense of this? And we have the opportunity to come to his table and say, help me understand this. Is there a suffering you need to name? The second thing, 
is there a sin that you have clothed yourself in that you need to confess and repent from? And then the third thing. Do you have the courage to verbalize a prayer that is lamenting in nature that just sounds exactly what we read? I named what's been lost. I confess any sins that I did that contributed to it. And I wait for a response from a loving God who sent his son to die in your place. That is the gospel. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, Lord, we, we love you. And, and I pray that over the next several weeks as we do look at Lamentations, um, Lord, that you would give us words that would turn into prayers that you would let to answer. And Lord, like we would just lament. Like when we look at a broken and sordid past, whether it's individually or whether it's corporately, that we would just be honest and we would just lament it. We would just say, it's broken. And Lord, we would ask you to give us guidance and direction to be a part of what you gave us, a ministry of reconciliation, reconciliation of God the Father to us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel that people might know the Lord. Personal reconciliation that we might offer forgiveness and confess our sins one to another, that we might find a healing and Lord, the, the unrest that we see in communities, that there would just be a, a sadness for what's broken. Jesus, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.